5. Uh, we're just kind of doing an introduction to the Beatitudes, but um, we're going to read through all of them today just so you can kind of see them as he references all of those. So, we are doing Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. If you want to read along in the Bible that's in front of you, that will be on page 809. Otherwise, it will be on the screen in front of you. Go ahead and stand if you're able, and read with me, please, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Kevin, if you want to come up, I'll pray for you. God, we thank you for the time just to come to worship you, to sing praises to you, to be reminded of your truths, Lord. Um, God, I pray that regardless of whatever we're going through in our life today, that, that you would use Kevin's word in this passage to speak into those things. God, that you would give us a time of just sitting here under your word. Um, give us peace. Soften our hearts to hear your word and your gospel. Um, and would you just use this time to let us know you more, um, to, to love you more, to grow and to be encouraged today. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone, once again. Um, I am going to introduce the Sermon on the Mount today, but before I get there, um, on Friday, a Friday in 2017, um, a man by the name of John Dixon, an author and teacher from Australia, rented a cello to make a point. And he paid for a two-hour lesson, and then he practiced almost nonstop for five consecutive days. That following Tuesday... He would take the stage in a Sydney theater and he would perform Bach's Prelude to Cello Suite Number no. 1 in G Major. Probably heard this. I don't know if that's coming through, but that's Yo-Yo Mods. It's just beautiful. Um, but there's no surprise that when John Dixon took the stage in front of the lights, in front of the cameras, it didn't sound anything like that at all. No. Um, but waiting over on the side was an accomplished cellist by the name of Kenny Mizuchima, and he eventually rescued him on that day. He took over, and the contrast was what you could say striking, right? Here's the point that the author was trying to make, and I think he made really well. He said, 
Disregarding Christianity on the basis of the poor performance of the church is a bit like dismissing Johann Sebastian Bach after hearing Dixon attempt the cello suite. Hearing me play, you could be forgiven for wondering whether Bach really knew how to write a tune, but most of us have a vague idea of how the original is meant to sound. So we might suspend judgment about the melody itself and place the blame where it belongs, my playing. We know to distinguish between the composition and the performance. And then he goes on, I've often felt something similar when pondering Jesus Christ and the history of the church. Jesus wrote a beautiful composition. Christians have not performed it consistently well. Sometimes they've been badly out of tune. Occasionally they've played something entirely different. And when people turn to contemplate the original, Christ makes Christians look bad. Carlos, over the last couple of years, um, followers of Jesus in the world, and especially here in the United States, haven't played too well, not at all. And that includes people out there, it includes people in here, you and me, I think we're included in that. Um, we've performed the music poorly for sure at times. We've at times played a completely different song, and you can be assured that the watching world has noticed. And the composition that we botched, and what we really need to hear, is what we're jumping into today. And it's what's found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And here we see the song of our Savior. And I know that while Jesus is no doubt grieved, he's not given up on us, his church, his people. And he invites us to learn this song from him and sing it for him out in the streets. Today, as we jump into this next section of Matthew, and it is perhaps one of the best-known chunks of the Bible, I want us to think about three pretty simple, straightforward things as we start. First, what this sermon is. That's important. Second, what we must understand. And third, why I think it's needed so much. So I'm going to jump into the first here. We're going to be in this section of Scripture for quite some time. And here at the outset, let's make sure, first of all, that we understand what this sermon is. The Gospel of Matthew starts out with this look at the identity of Jesus. That's where we've been in chapters 1 and 2. Who he is, where he's from. Now Matthew ends, though, with the purpose of Jesus. Who he, who, why he's come, what he does. We, we see there the road to the cross. We see his triumph in the resurrection. That's chapters 26 through 28. Now in between those two brackets are five cycles of stories and sermons. Each time we see Jesus' works followed by his words. So five different times, stories, sermons. We just finished up the first round of story as we saw his preparation for ministry, his baptism, his temptation. But now we come to the first section of teaching, the first sermon, and again, we call this the Sermon on the Mount. We, we think Augustine was the first who called it that back in the 4th or 5th century. When Jesus sees the crowds, he seeks out some time for himself, and that leads him up on a mountain, likely on the hills overlooking the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. But the quiet, of course, doesn't last too long, and this is just typical for Jesus' ministry. He sits down, he takes the posture of a teacher, and his students, his disciples, gather around him, and then as we find out at the end of the sermon, the crowds also do. And Jesus begins to teach. 
And here in these chapters, we find some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, but they're also some of the most jarring ones. That's because of what Jesus says and how he calls us to live. If you look back at chapter 4 with me again, in verse 23, we hear of Jesus. And he's going out, it says, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In chapter 4, verse 17, Matthew says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It seems the sermon that follows fits with that theme. Scholar Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. This is what it means, he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount, this is what it means to repent and to belong to the kingdom of heaven. The sermon is a description of the lifestyle of those who belong to that kingdom. So this is what a life transformed by the king looks like. This is what a life living in the kingdom of heaven, the shape it should take. Now I've already spoken about this sermon being one of the, the most beautiful songs in the Bible, and I don't really think that's much of a stretch. Because of the beauty of the words, you know, even just the, the lyrical quality of, of what's mainly prose, but these do start out with those beatitudes that, that Ben just read. Verses 3 through 12 of chapter 5. And what's the word? The first word of each of those, it's, it's blessed, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we'll look at beginning in a couple of weeks. And we're going to take them one at a time, which I'm really excited about. But think about um, how does our Bible songbook start? What's the Bible songbook? Well, that's another series that we're consistently in. The Psalms. How does it start? What's the word that keeps going on throughout that book? Blessed. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. You could say that the Psalms start with a beatitude, or, or maybe the beatitudes start with a psalm. You know, the Sermon on the Mount starts with a psalm. But either way, the Sermon on the Mount, it sings and it calls us as God's people to join in on that psalm. I love John Stott outline probably the most. And he calls those beatitudes a Christian's character. So that's the first thing we see. And then we see a Christian's influence in chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, where there we learn of our role as salt and light in the world. The rest of that chapter deals with a Christian's righteousness, where we hear what kind of life the Lord expects, which is, in a nutshell, a pure heart that overflows in love. In the first part of chapter 6, we see a Christian's piety. There we hear about the motivation that should drive our acts of worship. Jesus then moves to talk about a Christian's ambition. Here we hear that we're not to worry and how that is tied with what, we're, what we worship. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 20 deal with a Christian's relationships with God, with others. That chapter and that sermon concludes with a Christian's commitment. Will we listen to Jesus Will we build our lives on his words? 
Well, we'll walk through the seven sections over the coming months. And again, we're going to get a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven looks like and what it means to walk in repentance and faith toward Jesus. So that is a summary of what this sermon is. I want to move on to the second point, what we must understand. Most of us at least pretended to watch a football game over the last couple of weeks, right? And in that scrimmage, there were some pretty big plays. But one of the most infamous plays from scrimmage in a game of all time came at the hands of this man by the name of Jim Marshall. Now, this is now over 50 years ago. But this Minnesota Vikings defensive lineman scooped up a fumble, and he plotted 66 yards into the end zone in the wrong direction. So what we call now a, a scoop and score then was more of a scoop and safety. But he's been labeled wrong way Marshall ever since. Now, that's what can happen if we take this Sermon on the Mount and start heading in the wrong way. We hurt ourselves. We hurt our cause. We have to really make sure that we understand how to read it. What the Holy Spirit wants us to get. So here are six things that I'll say quickly that we need to grasp as we start out here. The first may sound obvious, but this sermon is meant to be obeyed. So it's easy for us to read this, or at least for me, and just kind of throw up our hands and just say, why bother? How can I do this? But earlier we, we read, then read, um, how the, the sermon begins, but it's really important to see how it ends. We'll get there, but I want you to hear it now. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So the verses following say that the crowd is mesmerized, they're just astonished. And it's pretty doubtful that they thought, oh yeah, his words are optional. No, not at all. Theologian R.T. France once put it this way, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, but to be obeyed. So second, though, these words show us our need for grace. Our need for grace. So we have to obey them, but then they drive us to the grace of God. C.S. Lewis once said this about the Sermon on the Mount. As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? Now, another thing I've seen people do with this passage is say something like this. Me, who I am, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. You know, with, a, with an air of confidence, maybe a bit of superiority. But I don't know about you, but those words from C.S. Lewis ring pretty true for me. Christ's words hit hard. They knock me down to size. They show me my great need. Love your enemies. Don't be anxious about anything? Are you kidding me? I mean, those are two sentences. That's all I need to hear. I can't do this on my own. Third, then, this message points us to the new birth. The new birth. 
we need new hearts. We're expected to obey Christ's words. We know we can't keep these words. What do we do? We run to our Father for help, and we ask Him to make us new. John Stott puts it well. He says, For the standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by every man, nor totally unattainable by any man. To put them beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. To put them within everybody's is to ignore the reality of man's sin. They are attainable, all right, but only by those who have experienced the new birth, which Jesus told Nicodemus was the indispensable condition of seeing and entering the kingdom of God. So we have to be born again. We have to have new hearts. Fourth, though, these words put us at Jesus' feet. Yes, we need new hearts to follow this at all, but we're invited into a life where we follow Jesus and we listen to him. So again, the crowds are here with Jesus. They're, they're hanging on every word. And between them and Christ are his disciples sitting around him. And we've said this multiple times already, and we'll keep saying it in this study. Jesus calls us to be disciples too, to be learners, to be followers. So this has to be our posture before this sermon to be people that are humble and people that are hungry. Fifth, this sermon meets us right where we are. So Jesus came announcing the kingdom of heaven. And our minds, certainly their minds, were going to this time when everything would be made right, when the king is fully seated on his throne. But Jesus says again, he says the kingdom is at hand. It's at hand. It hasn't fully come. The day's coming in the future when it will be, but it's right now here in part. And that means that we have to live this out, that he wants us to pursue this again today. But that also means it's going to be really hard, right? Because we have this overlap of the ages. The kingdom is here, but we're still in this old evil age. It's hard, but these are words that actually apply to 2022. For today, for now, for you, for me, you're Ferguson again. The kingdom has come in Jesus. Through faith in him, we enter the kingdom. It belongs to us. But we live in the kingdom of the world, Revelation 11:15. Although we do not belong to it. We belong to a new order of things, a new age altogether, a new humanity in Christ. But that new life has to be lived out within the context of the old. The new lifestyle of the kingdom, the life described in the sermon, is to be expressed in the context in which it is opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. First John 2. This is why the battle in which the Christian finds himself is far fiercer than anything he knew before he became a Christian. Sixth, though, this sermon gives us the path of blessing. We like to use the word blessed. We like to use blessing a lot today. This shows us what God's grace can do. What a life lived under his favor looks like. It's, it's a foretaste of his kingdom fully come. It's the road that leads to joy. Again, life in this age isn't easy. Living these words is going to be really hard. But hear me, Karis, and help me believe this too. Remind me. It's totally worth it. So I want to move on now to third, why we need this sermon so much. 
why we need it so much. There may be a few f f fans here of, of Ted Lasso in the house. Um, maybe you heard this. Um, Jason Sudeikis, the actor who won an Emmy for playing Ted, he expressed his surprise at the show's success. And when asked why, this is how he responded. He says, because it's about two things American ha Americans hate, soccer and kindness. Here I want to share just the heart behind why I chose this series and why I wanted to study Matthew. It's because I very much thought of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, of its relevance, especially today. Here in the U.S. and even within the church, we've not been good at living out these truths we see here. And sometimes we act like we even hate them. Four reasons why I think we so desperately need these words. First, it reminds us of whose voice we're meant to follow. Whose voice we're meant to follow. Maybe you already caught this, but there's a reason why Jesus goes up on a mountain. And it's not just because he wants a view. There's a reason why he goes up there and he sits and teaches the people of God. Not the 12 tribes of Israel, but 12 disciples, though, still. Who else does that in the Old Testament? Who else teaches in that way? Who else guides God's people to freedom? Moses, right? We're meant to see Jesus here as a, a new, a better Moses who gives us God's words. And here's a big difference. He enables us to live them out. Just like Moses, Christ tells us the, the blessings of obedience and the curses of the opposite. He says in chapter 5, verse 17, talking about the law of Moses, that he came to fulfill all that. Repeatedly he says, and this is, this is jarring if you think about this. He says, hey guys, you've heard that it was said this way, but I'm telling you it's this. Right? That's, that's authority. He's, he speaks with such authority that the crowds are just kind of taken back. And we've already seen his expectation of complete obedience. Our futures, he says, are determined by what we do in response to his words. Do we build on sand or on rock? This is the voice that we need to follow. So brothers and sisters, there are so many voices calling out to us today. Right? There's so much temptation to follow other authorities out there. But if we call ourselves Christians, if we call ourselves disciples, there's something so very basic that we can't forget. But we do. Jesus is our teacher. Jesus is our king. Hear his words. Cut through all the noise. And let's seek to obey him. Second, this reminds us how wide the gospel extends. How wide. If you ask me my opinion on why the last couple of years have been so hard... Here's my take. Our understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is just far too narrow. It may, it may fit a relationship of some sort between me and Jesus. It may be a theory would function to keep me out of hell. It maybe gives me some sort of peace, but that's really about it. The story of God, though, is about Him restoring shalom to all that He's made. That's everything that's been made wrong because of sin being made right again. That's our hope. 
That one day there will be perfect peace and justice again when his kingdom of heaven comes to earth, comes in full. That's what we're hoping for. The gospel of the kingdom extends far wider than we think and tend to act. And it's meant to be experienced little by little here and now. And we see that here in this sermon. This, this sermon speaks to how we live alongside with people we cannot understand. It takes head-on issues like money, sex, and power. It guides us how to respond when we have been wronged. It addresses our worry. It, it talks about how fickle our hearts can be. It tells us how to help those who have strayed and how to stand up to those who lead them astray. Soren Kierkegaard once said, maybe you've heard, that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Here we see so many of those inches. And we get to listen to Christ's heart so we can navigate all the others as well. And then we can work with and certainly not against this world that we all deep down want, the kingdom of heaven. Third, this reminds us of how deep the gospel of Jesus goes. How deep. In Martin Lloyd-Jones' famous commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he goes off on the first page about how superficial Christianity has become. And he's writing back in the 1950s. So we're living in this age where people wearing Christian t-shirts and who have hashtag blessed on their profiles are, are throwing electronic grenades at one another and really claiming Jesus' endorsement of that. Jesus on this mount, he warns repeatedly of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's because they work like crazy to keep the letter of the law, but get so far away from its spirit. They have this, this outward form of godliness, but they deny its power. They may not murder, but they're full of hate. They may not commit adultery, but they're overflowing with lust. Their best deeds are done only for show. They look for loopholes in the Bible so they can live how they want. They use God's word to prop up their sinful desires. And they lead people astray with their hollow lives. This is what Christ is addressing in chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's got to go so much deeper, Jesus is saying. He says later in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus can see through our pathetic posturing. And he makes clear his standard is perfection. His kingdom goes deep, so deep, that we can only go there by his grace. And that grace changes us from the inside out. And that's why I think the Beatitudes start with people who see their poor in spirit, who mourn for their sins, who are meek and hunger after God, who don't have all they need, and long for his help. John Dixon, again in his book, um, Bullies and Saints, refers to one of the melody lines of scripture that God's people have so often ignored. He talks first about the image of God and how we often forget that and don't 
champion that like we should. But then he said, a second one that's neglected, we see here in Matthew 5, and it's that we should love our enemies. Why is that? Why do we love our enemies? It's so that we would look like our dad, who loves enemies like us. So think about this. If the gospel of the kingdom gets in us, if we realize just how much we've been loved when we have tried to run as far away from God as possible, if that reality goes down deep and works its way into our hearts, that melody will burst out of us as well. It has to. Church, we can't be satisfied with a shallow, sappy faith that's built more on means than the message of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus goes deep, and that's where our king wants to go. Fourth, this reminds us of what mission we're to be about. What's our mission as a people? Is it to further our political party? Or to keep our guy on Pennsylvania Avenue? Is it about jump-starting the economy or maybe fixing the healthcare system? Those things are important. I mean, I think Christians should be involved in who our decision-makers are. It matters. But Jesus here says that we should be about his kingdom. So again, the kingdom of heaven is the theme throughout Entering there, he says, is the most important thing we can do. Seeking his kingdom and his righteousness is what he wants us to be all about. How does he teach us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Doing his will and spreading his kingdom should be our chief concern. There's this other theme that we also see in his words that we'll get to shortly. We're meant to be salt. We're called to be light. We're to let our light shine so that others will see our good works and that they would glorify our Father in heaven. Our goal isn't to own the libs or to pack the Supreme Court or whatever side of the aisle you're on. That's not our goal. It's to show people the glory of our great God and what he's done for us in Christ. Now, some are not going to like that light shining in their eyes. We learn in the Beatitudes that suffering will come. That's how it ends. If that doesn't happen, something is actually terribly wrong as we go out on his mission and build his kingdom. But I love the way John Stott summarizes the Sermon on the Mount with just two words. And um, they're this. It, it, the second word's hyphenated, so you might say three words, but Christian counterculture. That's how he describes Christian counterculture. So Jesus is about creating a people, the church, the language here, a city on a hill that stands out, that lives differently in a way that may push some away, but will draw others in certainly to Jesus. As we live out the sermon in God's power, we'll see that happen. We'll build his kingdom. That and that alone is our mission. In a book that's become a bit of a modern classic that's been made into a film, it's called The, the Book Thief by Marcus Zusak. He tells the story of how melodies and moving lyrics can bring about change. So the main character is this, this young girl named Liesel. She's adopted into a German family right in the middle of World War II. 
Her father's accordion ends up tying him to a Jewish man that they end up protecting in their basement. And he uses that instrument to bless many to provide for their home. But here's what Liesl gets as a young woman. She realizes that this diminutive Hitler guy rules almost exclusively through the power of words. And she decides she's got to fight on that front as well, even as a young girl. So she uses reading and later writing to spread love, to bring people together, to defeat hate. She becomes what her friend Max calls, the, the boy in the basement, a word shaker. A word shaker. Friends, that's what we can be as well as we hear the words of our king. As we take them and shake them out in our world, we can overcome the words of hate. As we carry melodies that bring people together, as we seek to obey our leader and king, Jesus. This is the song of our Savior. And it must be sung and felt by the church. It must be heard and celebrated out in the world. We will play wrong notes for sure. We're going to mess up the lyrics, no doubt. People may at times question if we're musicians at all, or they may accuse us of even being of playing the wrong score. But the Holy Spirit of God will move among those who are His. He'll guide us to sing this song of our Savior in Him and through Him and for Him. Not often on the big stage for the crowds to see, but in small ways, in simple ways. When you're at odds with a sibling and you stop what you're doing and you go make it right, when your heart is allured by something sinful and you close out the app and you call up a friend, when your spouse says hurtful words and you remember your vows and you return them with love, when you keep your word and you follow through, even if you're tired and wish you wouldn't have made that promise, when someone mocks your opinions and you power down your device and just put it away, when someone stabs you in the back and you somehow respond with kindness, when you love your enemies, what a miracle of grace is that? When you drop off that meal for the family that's ill and you hop in your car and just drive away, when you wrestle with your fears by getting on your knees, when you decide to pray instead of eat because you long for Jesus so much, and you're trying to do both of those things, not for them over there, but for him alone, when you invest in his kingdom instead of buying the next shiny thing, when you don't stress the next meal, the next bill, because you know that he's reigning as king, when you gaze in the mirror before you rage out the window and then you never get to opening the blinds at all, when you trust God for what's good, knowing that he's a kind father, when you somehow do to others what you would want done to you, how amazing is that? When you follow him down the path, whatever they may do, when you listen for his voice and you look out for the wolves, when you serve him from the heart in the smallest of ways, when you cling to the rock, when everyone around you is playing in the sand, when you admit your weakness and you cry over your faults and you put down your fists and you ask for less of you and more of him, when you don't give others what you think they deserve, but you run after him and revel in all the things that you don't deserve. When you seek to make peace and therefore look like your father above and when you take the abuse that inevitably follows and still somehow amazingly rejoice. 
You're singing his song. He's singing it through you. He sees you, even if no one else does. But you know what? They will. Your light will shine. Your light will warm. Your salt will flavor. It will preserve. And you'll glorify him as you sing this song, as he sings it through you. As people hear and they ask, how are you playing like that? What's with you? And even when you play the wrong notes and you admit that you've fallen completely flat, then I think they'll really listen. And they'll hear the song of the Savior. Let's pray. God, um, I just ask that you would work among us, that you would um, renew our deep love for you and what you've done for us, and that would just come, that would flow out of our lives. Father, um, forgive us for the ways that we fail, um, but always just enable us to just get up and um, call out for help and um, keep trying to love you and others again. Um, we need your Holy Spirit working in us. Um, we ask for, for more of your presence, more of your might. Um, we want to we wanna please you, Lord. Um, we want to have joy in you in the midst of this world. And, and we want um, people to hear the name of Jesus and come to him, Lord. Um, work through us, work in us. Um, as we jump into the Beatitudes, Lord, um, make us people that realize that we're poor in spirit, that we desperately need you, and just guide us as we walk through those. Um, make us different. Um, we know that you can. Um, in this journey, I pray in Christ's name, amen.